So that picture, by the way, was Montana, where my wife's from and is at now, and uh, where she grew up. It was in the spring, so the snow has melted into a meadow, and uh, a beautiful part of the country. That's home for her, and where I'm this semester. I'm going to. I'm on sabbatical this semester, and so that's where I fly to next uh, Wednesday. I'll head up there and begin sabbaticalizing. You know, I'm working on uh, a writing project and, and uh, hope to get some progress made. All right, so I do want to say thank you for letting me come. It's a blessing to be with God's people and lighthouses in different parts of the country, but I'm also grateful for a place that's so sympathetic at a belief and heart level with where I'm at. And, um, you know, last night we had a TMS event, and I, I, lo- I love where, I, where I'm at and the impact it's having, and, and part of my joy is I get to hang out with some TMS guys, right, and uh, families, see what God's doing in their life, and that's a great joy for me, and thank you for loving our men and families. Uh, I was with Rob Kensinger about a week and a half ago, spent a week in Honduras, and uh, grateful to be with Justin and his family a little bit, and Steve, and just uh, the others that you're part of their lives. Thank you for your love for the Lord, your love for people who are serving the Lord and your support of them. I'm getting to know your pastor a little bit. He uh, was at TMS before my time, and so it's a blessing to be here. And I'm grateful for your doing this to understand God's word better. I do bring you greetings from my family. I'll show you a picture that maybe on the PowerPoint tomorrow morning, and then um, you can see the, the crew. We do have eight children, that wasn't a fib, and uh, six boys, two girls, and God's good, we're grateful. So today, uh, or today and, and, and Sunday and Monday, we're, we're looking at the issue of major life-impacting truths from the minor prophets. Are there any? Well, I mean, I would say, yeah, there are various parts of the Old Testament that we don't spend a lot of time in, and uh, as an Old Testament guy, it seems that there are large parts of the Old Testament people don't spend time in. But the prophets are especially hard. They're just, it's a different world. And we understand epistles, like in the New Testament, letters are being written. We can understand kind of parables because we have stories with a moral to them in our lives. We have other kinds of literature we're kind of used to. But prophetic oracles? What's that? And how do they work? And how, do, how can I read them with benefit? What is there for me to learn? And so what I'm trying to do here is to, we're going to look at four different prophetic books or passages in those books. And, but this message this afternoon is more a preparatory one. I'm trying to give you the chance to get some ideas that you should grasp that's going to help you interpret the prophets on your own, to warn you of certain things coming that will help prepare you for working in that material. And then we'll look at Jonah and Micah 6, and then two books, Nahum and Habakkuk. You probably read those a lot in the last year, huh, Nahum and Habakkuk? You know what, I'm grateful to be here and look forward to God using our time together. I'll just pray for a moment. Thank you, Lord, for living hope. Bible Church, and what you have been doing and are doing in and through the brethren here, I do pray that 
that they would find this time, the fellowship, the teaching, the, the activities, encouraging, strengthening, a blessing, deepen relationships, and understand your word better. I do ask that you would help us have our eyes open to the truths of your word. And I pray your spirit would drive these truths home to our heart. Make us better handlers of your word because of our time spent here. And I do pray you'd hide your servant behind the cross and be the one who receives the glory because you're the one who deserves it. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you have in your notes, your note packet there, and uh, the, the PowerPoint will kind of use those outlines and try to fill in some information along the way. We're going to look in this session on laying a foundation for understanding the biblical prophets. It's more of a, a teaching session than maybe, maybe a sermonic mode. But I think it was important. I originally had another, another book of the prophets I was going to do, and as I kept thinking about how to best help you understand these truths, oh boy, it'd be really helpful to maybe lay a foundation and help you see some of the clues to interpret the prophet. So I'm going to walk through this, and we're going to go to, uh, it is on, there we go, sorry about the fadedness, I'm not sure I need to change it to black, I guess, it's a color. So when we think about the basic features of prophetic literature, I'll get to that in a moment, uh, the, the genre, the kind of literature in the Bible of the prophets is a, a category that we're not all familiar with. And that foreignness requires that we understand some of the unique points of that literature. So first of all, letter A, it's, you can't see it at the top, but it says uh, basic features of prophetic literature. Then you have the prophets use poetry for much of their message. Poetry for much of their message. And, and what, what that resulted in is in biblical poetry, in addition to parallelism, which is not like our rhyming, you know, Jack and Jill run up the hill and fetch a pail of water, Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after with this rhyming at the end. The parallelism in Hebrew is more pieces. So you have, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. So bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So there's a, a paralleling of these pieces of a statement. And it could be synonymous, it could be contrastive, but what I'm thinking about here with poetry and one of the challenges it offers, and prophecy is primarily poetic, is that it uses the, it makes it extensive use of figures of speech and various kinds of graphic imagery, and we'll talk about some of those later, that can throw you for a loop. I mean, we would practice what we call normal interpretation. You take things literally and that's where you start. But there are times that the plain sense doesn't make common sense, right? So when Jesus says, I'm the door, he's not saying he's a 32-inch by 6-foot piece of wood. He's saying, I'm a point of entrance, right? And so we have to know that. So well, what I have up here, what the prophet does not say on the left is God is mad. And that's right to the point, right? No, but he says, the lion, Amos 3.8, the lion has roared. Very pictorial, right? You imagine this lion coming up and roaring in your face, it'd be terrifying. So he, he uses this graphic language to drive a point home. The prophet doesn't say sin is awful and forgiveness is amazing, as, as beautiful as that would be. It's, he says, 
In Isaiah 118, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Very, very heart-gripping and graphic. The prophets don't say, again, sorry, I'll have to use a different font color. Uh, they don't say Israel's unfaithfulness is disgusting and causes God pain. They say in Jeremiah 3, sadly, to Israel, but you, Israel, have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me? I mean, the graphic weight of their sin and the way it grieves God is presented in a more poetic way. Uh, a couple of scholars write that the power of poetry lies in its ability to affect the emotions of the reader or the listener. Now, there's truth, concrete truth being presented, but it's one of the things that's unique about both poetic literature, the Psalms, and the prophets. It's just written in a way that's more gripping, if you pay attention to it. It's, it's done more graphically. Now, guys, I'm not sure how romantic you are. I would, I would encourage you to tell your wife every day that you love her, or hus wife, tell your husband every day you love him. But, you know, I'm not a very creative guy, so I have to work hard at this. Sometimes to come up with some unique, you know, special way you write that poem that is totally out of character for you, but it's communicating in a, in a very, very special way your love. That's the idea of what prophecy does. It, it, it presents truth that is concrete and objective. It isn't metaphorical truth. It's concrete truth, but it's written in a way that grips the heart. And then, so th that's one thing you want to know is you want to know that I have here, letter A is, the prophets use poetry for much of their message. And then letter B is, the prophets, and I'm sorry about the washing out there. I'm not sure how to do that better. But uh, you, the prophet, you have those in the outline issue. The prophetic books are primarily anthologies. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if you're used to going through you know, the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of the primeval period before the patriarchs and 12 to 50 of the patriarchs. And you have four events in chapters 1 to 11, Creation, fall, flood, Babel. And then you have four people in the seven. So it's kind of like, oh yeah, I can outline that book. I mean, it just falls into place. It progressively presents. It's a narrative. Oh, great. What does a prophet do? Kind of walks in circles. Kind of, you know, uh, has oracles that aren't not put together chronologically. Jeremiah, for example, if you did a time chart on years, the year of what he's saying is, and you're going through the book, it'd be like a seismic, you know, an earthquake hit. Because they're all over the page as far as chronological period. You have to pay attention to what the prophet says about when it happened. But it isn't like a progressive argument, like in a narrative book or a, a, an, a, an epistle. That just means that you got to take a bit of a chill pill and when it comes to your outlining mode and realize that I need to understand Number one, the individual oracles and why they are together. But it's a different world. So if you walk into that world thinking I'm going to outline this like Genesis, you're going to pull your hair out. But there is something to learn from how the prophet arranges what he has to say. And then, then don't throw me out of the window here. The third one is um, Old Testament prophets only rarely write about events that are yet future. No, I'm not an amillennialist. Okay, I'm a happy, happy, enthusiastic premillennialist. 
that uh, believes that Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom on earth and reign for a thousand years and restore Israel, the nation, to the land of promise. But I do think we sometimes go to the prophets and we have this blank page of ready to fill in all this information from the, for my prophetic calendar. And you have to realize there's two words to describe what the prophets do. There's foretelling, predicting, which is part of what the prophets do. And then there's forth-telling or preaching. So if you go to the book of Amos, for example, and you have your, your pad of paper ready to write on all these things that are predicted to the, about the distant future, you keep waiting until chapter 9, verse 11, at the very end of the book, for something looking to the distant future. The rest of the book is preaching to this generation about the coming judgment on them if they keep pursuing covenant treachery, a near future kind of a thing. And so we have to realize that the prophets aren't just filling in the gaps in our prophetic calendar. They do that in some passages more than others. We want to understand their message. And what, are the, what does it teach me about God? And what does it teach me about his plan? Big picture, and then some will give us details of that plan. So I'm telling you that just so you have the right expectations. Now, if you were, if a person like uh, two scholars named Fee and Stewart, uh, who are amillennialists, they say that less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy is messianic or predictive of distant future events that we can expect to happen. Now, I'd say more like 25 to 30% as a premillennialist. But I just, it's good to walk into the prophets with the right expectation. That there are things that God is saying through the prophets to the nation of Israel that calls them to a life of loyalty, a life of allegiance. And we can learn from them. And I hope to see some of those things in Jonah, Micah 6, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Those are things with relevant truths for us, even though they're not all predicting something in the distant future. We can benefit from them. And the last thing is kind of the broad introduction to the prophets and some basic features of the prophets, and that is the function of the prophets. We need to understand who they are and what they're doing. And so I have here in your notes, you have a blank, but, um, sorry, number one is up there somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's, can you see number one? Okay, I can't. I can see it there. So it's not as bad as I thought it was. Right, so number one, in general, the prophets served as Yahweh's, and this is the blank here, prosecuting attorneys. Prosecuting attorneys. The point is, as God's chosen people would turn away from him, forgetting their covenant commitment to which they'd solemnly committed themselves, the prophets emerged, sent by God, as God's spokesman to call the people back to covenant obedience. And so the prophets come to God's people, and they're prosecutors, if you will. They're bringing indictments to God's people, indictments of covenant treachery. Repent, or trouble is coming. God's going to bring divine judgment on you. You've entered into this, this committed relationship by faith. I have pursued you, and I've made you my nation. And, and you're part of this, and I hold you responsible to honor your commitment. When the Lord was about to offer them the Ten Commandments, we'll look at Exodus 19 a little bit. And after he says, this is the rationale, I'm giving you the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They committed themselves as a nation to live that life of loyalty. And so the prophets are God's prosecuting attorneys who bring indictments against his people because they're committing treachery. 
in the face of that commitment they made. So it just helps us understand that foretell, the foretelling part, the preaching part of the prophets is commonly the prophets involved in bringing indictments against God's people to call them back to repentance. Now we know the end of that story, right? We understand that in the Old Testament, as a nation, they never turned back to the Lord. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. We'll talk about that in a minute. So they're prosecuting attorneys. And then the second thing is, is the prophetic message draws heavily on the language, the wording of the Mosaic Covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant is what you want to fill in there. Especially the wording found in the book of Deuteronomy and some in Leviticus. Why is that important to understand? Well, I want you to realize that the prophets are not being innovative, you know, totally unique, making up brand new stuff, especially in their preaching part. They are speaking with the authority of the Mosaic Covenant behind them. And when, when you're reading the prophets and they're talking about if you don't repent, you're going to face drought and famine and, and, and sickness and attack and conquest and eviction from the land of promise. Huh, where do you think that comes from? Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. So the Lord isn't using the prophets to tell them something that totally is new and unheard of. No, he's calling them back to what he had said in the Pentateuch and especially the Mosaic Covenant. He wants them to repent, to pursue him, to live a life of loyalty for his glory. And so they're, they're bringing their exhortations as well as the promises. And we'll see that in Habakkuk. That is based on the Mosaic Covenant. To live in a submission to this awesome God who has pursued them in this relationship. Let me just read a quote. I didn't put it in, in the PowerPoint, but these, a couple of scholars write this. Theologically, the prophets proclaim their message from the context of the Mosaic Covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant is their background, primarily as defined in Deuteronomy. They tell the people to repent, to turn from idols, to return to the covenant they agreed to keep in Deuteronomy. They warn the Israelites of the terrible punishments God threatened in Deuteronomy. The ultimate punishment which they announce with sorrow is the loss of God's presence and the loss of the promised land. So if you want to understand the prophets, you need to have a good Mosaic Covenant head on. You need to understand what, what, were, the, what were the expectations God presents here in the Mosaic Covenant. Those are foundational because that's what the rest of the Old Testament is being evaluated by. You know, the, the, the Mosaic Covenant, and it's particular as is worded in Deuteronomy, that wording shows up in the historical books because the, the status of God's people is being measured by the yardstick of, guess what? The Mosaic Covenant, Mosaic Law. And the prophets and the preaching both positively and negatively to God's people is the, the, the foundation for the language of those indictments and promises is based, guess where? Mosaic Covenant. So that's just good to know to connect the dots because you, you, you'll understand the prophets better as you realize they aren't just being nifty and cute and innovative and making up stuff on their own. No, they're calling God's people to live a life of loyalty. We'll come back to what the law is about because when you and I think sometimes they're being called the, the law, you're thinking gross because the law is horrible. I mean, 
It's just we all we have a fairly negative view of the law, but we'll we'll try to pop that bubble. And that gets us to Roman numeral two, and that is law focused or relationship driven. Now you have a big gap there, because I hadn't finished arranging how I wanted to say what I wanted to say, but it's on the on the outline point. First of all, and we're gonna hit this concept um, tomorrow morning in Micah 6, because I think it's a, a big truth there. The first idea here is that God established a covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants who became Israel. So in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, we read that the Lord has called Abraham to come out of the land of Ur from Babylon, and he comes to the land of Canaan that the Lord revealed to him to, as his destination. And the Lord makes a, a promise to him that's part of this covenant. So he, he chooses Abraham and his descendants out of all of the peoples of the world, and he has a plan. So from, from Genesis 11, which is as wide as the world, it's like the wide-angle lens of Scripture. In Genesis 12, you go to the microscope of Genesis 12 that focuses in on Abraham and his descendants. And then it's going to grow as that, that nation fills out with 12 tribes and other things, but he says, the Lord said to Abraham, go out from your land and your relative and from your father's house to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name, your reputation great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So he promises them a land, and to reaffirm that in 15 and 17, and in the prophets repeatedly, he promises them a, to be a nation, because there's this concrete group of people that God intends to work in and through for his glory as part of his bringing to pass his ultimate fulfillment, and then he's going to make them a blessing to all the peoples of the world that includes the promise of the Messiah that's born through Israel. So in Genesis 12, we think of these promises, these provisions God gave, but this is, this is the big truth I want you to walk away with. I want you to think from Genesis 12 on about the word that starts with our relationship. Because sometimes we think about the Old Testament, we think about lifeless, you know, misery, demands and expectations. But that's not what it's about. The, the, even the blessings. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a blessing. Are anchored in this relationship God is pursuing with his chosen people. And they're demonstrating a God who not only promises, but is a great God who keeps his promise in amazingly stupendous ways. He's a God who is asking for the loyalty as the God who has been and will pursue this relationship with them to, to, to the moment when it reaches its, its culmination and fruition. So it's important to realize from Genesis 12 on, and really before that, but for the sake of this, this setting, uh, from Genesis 12 on, God is pursuing a relationship with his people. When we read things in the Old Testament about what God is expecting of his people, think of them not as just some demands in a vacuum, but they're part of a relationship. Well, why should that be important? Well, let's say 
let's say Steve. Sorry, Steve. I'm going to pick you out. Your wife's name is Ver Veronica, right? All right, so um, let's say I, I hang out with Steve a lot, and I, I see the way he loves his wife, and uh, I'm doing a little interview about, you know, married life, and, and I have this video camera set up, and Veronica's in the next room watching this. And I say, Steve, I just want to commend you for the way you pursue and love Veronica, and you have a heart for her, and you're living a life of purity, and you, you're, you're trying to be selfless in the way you love us. Christ loved the church. I want to thank you for that encouraging testimony and the blessing that is to me. I'm kind of curious. Just to help those who are listening to the video, why do you live that way with Veronica? And this kind of dumbfounded look comes on Steve's face as he's looking at the camera, and he says, well, because that's what the rules tell me to do. Boy, that would warm. Veronica's probably thinking, oh, that is so nice. I'm so happy <laughs> that he's a rule keeper, that he's doing it just because he has this list. And that's the sum total of the reason why he does that. Well, that's not true for any of us as husbands, I would hope, right? And you're in big trouble when you see Veronica later, Steve. No, the thing is, is there's this vibrant relationship into which Steve has ended with Veronica, and it's a two-way street, and because of their love for one another, the desire to honor God in that relationship, and, and the passion that's part of marriage, and the intimacy that's part of marriage, there's a longing to live out the requirements that God has given. Yes, there are requirements, but it's a relationship-driven obedience, right? That's what I want to make sure you get, is there's a relationship that's always the backdrop for what God asked in the Old Testament law and what the prophets call his people to in the prophets. So the rest of the Old Testament demonstrates God's pursuit of that relationship with his stubborn, hard-hearted, obstinate nation. And you know the fact, and this is, again, other messages could be preached in this area, but... You know the fact that the nation of Israel seems like it fails in the Old Testament doesn't change God's plan or his intentions. Israel's never embracing as a nation this awesome God by faith and living a life to put him on display is part of the dark backdrop that paves the way for the glories and the beauty and the bright light of the new covenant. But it also helps us know what God He's expecting ultimately what will come to pass, ultimately, because God promised it. And the day is coming in the future when you'll have all Israel saved and as a nation restored to the land and enjoying his kingdom rule in the millennium. It will happen for God's glory. But it's always that relationship that's at the core. We're going to come back to that more times than you could care to admit. Okay, then uh, I say here that the Mosaic Covenant is not primarily about rules, but about relationship. So the core idea of the Mosaic Covenant, if you were to think about what, how would you summarize the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, in one sentence, some of you might say pain and misery, right? Or Old Testament sacrifice, Levitical sacrifice, or clean and unclean food, or whatever. Uh, here, here, here's the the biblical, the Old Testament summary, one sentence summary of the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law. I will be your God and you will be my people. The point is, is at the heart of the Mosaic Law is this relational core. 
It's always about relationship that's at the heart of these lofty demands he gave his people then and he gives us today. And I've given you a passage there. No, Leviticus 26, I have it in my notes. Go ahead and look over to Leviticus 26, verses 12 and 13. Yes, there is something of value in Leviticus. No, all kinds of great truths, but understandably it's a tough part of Scripture at times to read. But look at verses 12 and 13. And this is that chapter that talks about blessings and cursings like Deuteronomy 28. And he talks about confirming his covenant with them. But look at verse 12. 26, Leviticus 26, 12. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would no longer be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to live in freedom. But he says there, I will be your God and you will be my people. And as the your God, your God part, he, he perfectly carries that out. In fact, he talks about an example of that, like when you were enslaved in Egypt and I promised I was going to make you into a nation and give you a land, I did what was necessary to make that happen. I, I broke the bars of slavery that were binding you to bring you into that land of promise. That's going to happen in the book of Joshua. Just turn over to, to Jeremiah 32, 38, just see another, there's, there's like 30 or 40 of these statements I could point to, but Jeremiah 32, verse 38. So he says here, after he's talking about a future event, the restoration of the land, the, the, the nation of Israel, the land of promise. He says, they will be my people and I will be their God. What is he saying? When, when I restored them the land I ripped them out of, I had taken them out of it because of covenant curse. When I bring them back to that land in the millennial, right before the millennium, at the end of the tribulation, they're going to be who I always wanted them to be. As I've done perfectly, God says, I will be their God. But guess what? They will gladly and wholeheartedly embrace their part of the relationship. I will, they, will, they will be my people. What I want you to see then is just the, the Mosaic Covenant and God's expectations more broadly of his people in both Testaments is not just about rules, but it's about relationship. Now, I'm not an antinomian, a guy that says, oh, no laws, free from the law, happy condition. I can do what I want. I can pick my own way. No, God has given us prohibitions and commands in both Testaments, and the prohibitions and commands of the Old Testament law, I would say, are not law for me or for you. We can learn things about who God is, but they're not just law for us. But what I want to emphasize here is that there are always, those commands are never to be the primary focus of our attention. We'll see this in Micah 6, that God asks us he isn't asking us to live law-driven, law-consumed lives, but relationship-driven lives that show up in obedience, right? So just like a relationship is an important part of a husband or wife conducting themselves in a way that lives in accordance to God's concrete expectations, that's true of anything that God expects of us. All right, so then... So that's um, the core idea of the Mosaic Law. 
Then I want to turn to Jeremiah 7, 21 to 23. Yes, it's out of a clock, and here I'm free from the law of time. Right? There's a blessing of not wearing a watch. I'm totally not responsible for that. You have a trap door here? I'll put my phone up here. Okay, yeah. Because I've not gotten... So what am I aiming for, time-wise? Okay. So he said 4 o'clock, so... No, Jeremiah 7, 21 to 23. Now don't read ahead, okay? So Jeremiah 7 is one of those passages that at the, at the heading sometimes in your Bible, you get an idea, this is, this is negative. I mean, it's like the smoke rises off the page of Jeremiah 7. Trouble is coming on Israel. Whoa. Severe judgment is coming. And so in chapter 21, though, the Lord is getting at the core issue for the problem, and he says, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. What? What's that about? Well, this is where, again, understanding the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant can be helped. If you think about the Old Testament sacrificial system, all but Two sacrifices involved only offering a small part of the sacrificial animal. They would take normally the fatty portion back near the kidney and some other places at times, and they'd offer that on the altar, and the rest of the animal would be eaten by the priest, or with a fellowship offering, it'd be eaten by the worshiping family and the priest, like a potluck or something. Right? So you have the majority of the sacrifices involved a small part of the animal, the sacrificial animal being consumed on the altar, and the rest was eaten by the priest or the priest of the worshiping family. Only two sacrifices, the guilt offering and the burnt offering, involved the whole animal being consumed on the altar. So what is he saying here? Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. What he's saying is, this is the Grisani paraphrase, for all the good it's doing you, you might as well eat the meat of the burnt offering instead of wasting that meat on the altar because I'm not listening. I'm not hearing. I'm not smelling the sweet aroma. It's wasted meat. Don't bother. I'm not paying attention. My eyes are closed. My ears are closed. I'm not listening. You guys are such, you're, you're devoted, so devoted to covenant treachery that that burnt offering means zero to me, God says. So go ahead and add it to the rest of your offering offerings and eat the meat because otherwise you're wasting it. So if I asked you, so before we go on to verse 22, I want to ask you a question. If I asked you what the Mosaic law was all about, before what I just said a moment ago, I will be your God, you will be my people. Okay, you might have said sacrifices, clean unclean food, you know, pain and misery, whatever, torture, you know, whatever. It could be all kinds of things. Now, I want you to with that in your back, what, what, you, what, you just, what you would have said this morning, notice in verse 22 what the, what the Lord says through the prophet. Because verse 21 begins with, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Verse 22, for when I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offering and sacrifice. What? So when I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, book of Exodus that leads to the book of Leviticus, I did not speak with them or command them 
concerning burnt offering and sacrifice. Wait a second. What in the world is Leviticus all about? If it's not about burnt offering and sacrifice, what about the, the last half of, Levi- of Exodus that kind of lays the foundation for the sacrificial system? How can he say that? Some translations take the edge off of that hard statement by saying just. I did not just, or I did not merely, did not command you merely about burnt offerings and sacrifices, which is an appropriate presentation of the ultimate idea, but it takes that shock value off. What's the Lord saying here? He's saying that when he gave you those laws that included burnt offering and sacrifice and all of those Levitical details, how do you consecrate a priest? How do you be ritually pure? How do you do this? How do you do that? Those sacrifices are not the ultimate big idea that God is pursuing. They're a means to an end for God. But what's ultimate? When God made those requirements of sacrifice, he's saying, I did not speak about them. I didn't command them in the ultimate sense. And we learn more in verse 22, where... Uh, verse 23, sorry, when God established the Mosaic Covenant, I'm saying, with his chosen people and gave them his law, sorry. So, I'm asking here, when, when God established the Mosaic Covenant with his chosen people and gave them his law, what was he trying to accomplish? What was the big idea? I think God is saying that sacrifice all by itself is not the big idea. Look at verse 23. He just said, I did not speak with him or command him concerning burnt offering and sacrifice. However, I did give this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now notice, you must follow every way. I command you that it may go well with you. So there are commands that are part of what he has given his people, but what he wants them to realize is, is that in the giving of the law, the giving of the, sac- or the requirements to sacrifice and to practice ritual purification and other things. Those were the doodads. Those were the furniture in the room, but they weren't the the dynamic life in the room that was supposed to be there. That God was always wanting to pursue in his expectations of his people a growing and vibrant relationship with them. God gave them his law as part of his relationship with his people, not just as a bag of rules dumped on them to make their lives miserable. Now, you might, you might think, well, this is ho hum. I already knew that. Well, unfortunately, many people don't. You're ahead of the game if you knew all of that. Because, oh, unfortunately, when we think about the law and that affects our view of the prophets, we need to realize that, number one, that God has always been pursuing the idea that God's people would live a life of loyalty and allegiance from an inside out, in an inside out fashion, for his glory to put his character on display as part of a relationship, a vibrant faith relationship with him. That's what he's pursuing. And yes, the laws and the sacrifices are part of that set of commands, but they are not the ultimate point. Right, so relationship is always important to keep in mind. Now, one more thing that I think is important to understand the law, but also the prophets, and that is Exodus 19 Four and six, four to six, we have God's rationale for the, the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant. Exodus 19, 
4 to 6. He says here in Exodus 19, verse 4, the Lord again speaks. You have, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, ten plagues, and how I carried you in eagle's wings and brought you to me here at Mount Sinai. So God is saying to them, I am absolutely, totally, comprehensively, exhaustively responsible for you coming out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, and being here at Mount Sinai where I'm going to move this relationship forward. So God is the one who has brought them there. He freed them from slavery in Egypt, and he brought them circumstantially, miraculously, to Mount Sinai. And then he says in verse 5, Now if you will listen to me, and you have that on the screen there, now if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, if, there's an if-then statement here, and what covenant is he talking about? If you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, then what's the, what's the covenant? I don't think it's the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 12. I think it's the one that's right around the corner in, Gen in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, where you have the Ten Commandments. And then you have the rest of the Mosaic Law being given in Exodus and kind of re-enunciated in more details given in Leviticus. So he's laying before his people the rationale behind him giving the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Mosaic Law. This is an ultimate objective God had in making this happen in giving them the law. Are you with me here? If not, you can ask me questions afterwards. But notice what he does in the then. If you'll listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, the one I'm about to begin here, this Mosaic covenant that's giving me the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law in Exodus 20, around the corner and several chapters afterwards in the Pentateuch, you will be then, the point is if you'll hear my voice and you'll carefully keep my covenant in an inside-out way, a life of loyalty from the inside out, then... You'll be my own possession, you'll be a kingdom of priests, and you'll be my holy nation. Now again, lots of time could be spent here, but let me just take my word for it that a core idea of all three of those thens involves the idea of representation. To just put God's character on display. You'll be my special possession, that the relationship that they enjoy with their great God is evidenced by their heartfelt, enthusiastic, inside-out life of loyalty that leads to radically different living in the world around them. They're just jaw-dropping this impact on the watching world is indicating something about God's character. Being a kingdom of priests isn't wiping out the Levites and saying, I don't need them anymore because he's still, he just made them into the priestly tribe. He's saying, no, that like a priest represents God to the people and the people to God, God is saying it's a kingdom you need to live your life in a way that represents me to the people, to each other, to the nations around you. And then a holy nation, be holy as I am holy, was never. So people would pat him on the back. I mean, think of that verse in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before you know, the world and let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and shake your hand and pat you on the back. No, no, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What does it mean, glorify your Father in heaven? That means the idea of lifting up his name, making his name prominent, putting him on display as a result. And so I want you to see that 
Yes, God expected concrete things that were part of the Mosaic Covenant. But he, we often miss his ultimate purpose. And I have here in the next slide a statement that kind of captures the punchline to me. He gave, God gave the Mosaic Law to his people so they would have a crystal clear idea of how to live a life that would put his surpassing character on display before each other as well as before the nations around them. And when they didn't hear his voice and keep his covenant, they were bringing a blemish to his name instead. They were misrepresenting him to each other and to the world, and that's why God held them responsible. Because they were communicating the wrong message to the people around them. They were not making it possible for them to understand this awesome God because they were living lives of covenant treachery. And so he promises to judge them and remove them from the land of promise. It's not just about rules. It's about a relationship that's supposed to show up in world-impacting, genuine, inside-out loyalty. Well, again, um, that, that, that's an important background to understanding the prophets, too. Because when God calls them to repent of their sins to return to a vibrant relationship with the Lord. It isn't just keep the rules. It's put my character on display to each other as Israelites as well as to the nations around. Because in the Old Testament, it was by being a banner nation, God is communicating the importance of being a banner nation that would demonstrate God's character to the world around them. And then in the New Testament, it's that plus the outgoing witness to the nations that's part of missions today. But that banner nation part, that witness, that life witness is the foundation for the outward going testimony of God's character to a desperately needy world. So the prophets are part of that. All right, then we'll see if, I have one more thing, we'll see if I have time to go beyond this, but um, the basic prophetic message, this is important to understand. It just is now not every prophet is going to have all three of these. But for you to understand the prophets, you need to understand this, these basic elements of the prophet's message. Like Obadiah. Obadiah is about Edom, you're going to get crunched because you committed treachery against God's people. Okay, this is kind of bad news. And there's only one part of the story. And it's about a Gentile people. They're going to be punished for the treachery they demonstrated toward God's covenant people. So when you look at a book like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you generally get more of this message. In some books, you only get part of it. But I would just, and I'm borrowing from a friend. He's written this in a book, but, um, so I don't want to take credit for it. Uh, here are the three parts of the prophetic message. You have, first one is, you have broken the covenant, had better repent. You have sinned and better repent. The next part, by the way, you'll see in a moment is, if you don't repent, you're in big trouble. Judgment is coming. But think about this. In what ways did they break the covenant? And the prophets labor the point to help God's people to understand the seriousness and the extent of Israel's rebellion against the Lord. And there are three categories of sin that are normally involved in what the prophets say. And, and I want you to understand this because it... it um, it shows up in the prophets with regularity. And the first one is idolatry, the worship of other gods. 
And this is probably the most flagrant violation of the covenant and represents nothing less than treachery. God has said to his people, I will be your God, you will be my people. He enters into an exclusive relationship with them. And in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the Shema, they call it. This is the Grisanti translation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. Yes, the Lord alone. Now, the one God, I understand, is a common translation there, but I don't think uh, Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6 and following is talking about monotheism compared to polytheism, even though it's true. Monotheism is true. I think the point is that, he, that Moses is making in Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6 is he is the only and incomparable God for you. And so for them to worship other gods as Yahweh plus is the height of treachery. And unfortunately, Israel regularly fell into that trench. Yahweh plus this, Yahweh plus that. And God says that's, that's uh, nothing less than treachery. It's kind of like me going to Martha and saying, hey, sweetheart, I love you with all my heart. I'm glad you're my wife. What would you think about me having a mistress? Well, it's not at all in my heart, let me assure you. But that, that's about the most horrific thing I could say. It would be incompatible with a loving, genuine relationship between a husband and a wife. So, by the way, the whole thing about whoredom, prostitution mentioned in the Bible in a spiritual, metaphorical kind of sense is communicating the offense of this kind of an idea. To worship Yahweh plus another God is nothing less than horrible offense. It's absolutely unacceptable. And we're not talking generally in the Old Testament about ever Israel ever rejecting altogether this God. It was never, okay, I'm going to totally debunk Yahweh and go to another religious system. No, it was always a syncretism, it's called, a Yahweh plus. Because, and I can't go down this road very far, but these other gods, and the way they worked as fertility gods, they allowed people to stir the pot, to pull the chain, to be involved, to make stuff happen. And people want to do that. The idea of believing in an invisible God was demanded lofty allegiance and you can't see this God, he's, he's, in his, he's described in the word, you see his actions. Sometimes people want to not just submit to that God and depend on him and expect him to do what he said. They want to stir the pot themselves. They want to make things happen. They want to write the script. They want to pull the chain and make something happen, which is not at all what God says. Right, so idolatry is the first part of that message of the prophets that God condemns repeatedly. The second one, and this is kind of controversial today if you've been on social media, especially on TMS websites or what, you know, Facebook pages, social injustice. Now, I'm not going to pursue the, the debate there, but what I want to tell you is, is the Bible does talk about social justice or injustice. And the problem is in today's world, social justice injustice is hijacked to be a political version of social justice and injustice. What, what God is saying here is, imagine this, that you have, you know, here's you know, Mike Grisanti, or Joe Israelite, but here, here's a person in the Old Testament, and he has an arrow pointing up, relationship with God, and the arrow's pointing out to the side, relationship with each other. Israelites first, and other people outside of that. And the point of what God expected of his people, and offering sacrifices. Yeah, there are certain parts of the Mosaic law that directly 
relate to their relationship with God. I call those vertical dimension requirements, vertical dimension requirements of the Mosaic Law. But there are also horizontal dimension laws in the Mosaic Law, and those things talk about how do you deal with other people in a way that, and all of this is to put God's character on display, right? The, the Mosaic Law, if you'll hear my voice and obey my covenant, you'll be unto me these four, these three representative functions, treasure, possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation, and if you were to take those horizontal dimension laws that deal with how you deal with other people in a way that puts God on display, kind of some of the major characteristics that rise to the top are justice, equity, righteousness, kindness, and compassion. And, and where do those, either you're obedient, you're doing that in a radically different way than the world around you, or the failure to do that, where does it especially show up? with the needy, with the folks at the fringe of society, the widows, the orphans, the resident foreigners, the folks who weren't Israelite but had kind of glommed on and attached themselves to Israel. They have no claims to land as a citizen. So they're kind of hanging on by their fingernails and guess who would be easy to take advantage of? The needy. But, but guess what would be radically different than the world around them in the way to treat those people? Look at Deuteronomy 10 sometime. Look at verses 17 and following. The Lord says, he's this all-powerful God who isn't given to partiality, doesn't take bribes, and he defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow, and the resident foreigner. And he says, there's a you too need to pursue and defend the cause of the resident foreigner. You just mentioned the third one, because that's the one they could most resonate with. The point is God is saying, this is how you can put God's character on display. This does not replace preaching the gospel. That's not God's point. But you think about in a world, our world in the Old Testament, where there are concrete evidences of some version of Christianity going on. Yeah, he looks like a Christian. The way he's dressed, the way, whatever, what he does, he gives offering on Sunday, he has a moral compass, it seems. The prophets, when they, when they come to God's people bringing their indictment against them, watch out for this, because you're going to see Isaiah, for example, says, talks about the way they treated the fatherless and the widow and the resident foreigner. Because that's a barometer. That's an indicator of their heart. It cuts through the fog of veneer, of spiritual veneer, of pretend faith relationship. And in those settings where you have before you needy people, is your heart moved with compassion in a way that brings you to action, whether on your own or with other people? Because that's what puts God's character on display. Well, in, in a in a desperately needy world where there are needy people around us and it starts with the church and the way we love one another in concrete ways and care for the fatherless and the widow and those who maybe aren't directly part of us but they're, they've attached themselves to us. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. That you have love one for another. That you know, they'll, they'll, they'll recognize your embracing his lordship how you conduct yourself. So what I'm saying here is in the prophets, you're going to come across Amos, Mike in particular, Hosea, not 
Israel indicted for not practicing social justice or practicing social injustice, taking advantage of the poor, bribing and corrupting judges to render legal decisions so you get their land when they're defenseless, pursuing your agenda at their loss instead of putting God's character on display by the way we show compassion and kindness. Now again, I would say, there's been an elder before, that I would, I would first of all focus on how we do that as a church, right? And genuine compassion to those that are needy. And then there are ways that in certain, in certain climactic periods, and it, it for sure, where you, you, you have an earthquake that hits this country, let's say Honduras, and your first thought is, how can we show the love of Christ? And how, well, who can we work through as a conduit to demonstrate God's character of love, mercy, and grace in this setting, because we want to advertise this character, even if they're not part of our church. My, my point is in the prophets, when you think about what they're saying, when they talk about, the, when, when Isaiah brings his indictment of covenant treachery against God's people, he doesn't talk about you're offering the wrong sacrifices generally. He doesn't talk about you're eating the wrong kind of food. He doesn't say you aren't practicing ritual purification. The barometer test is quite often you're taking advantage of the widows and the orphans and the resident foreigners. And what that does is that, that, that's a, a denial, a, a corrupting of putting God's character on display. Now again, I'm first to tell you, I want to make sure you understand, this does not replace the preaching of the gospel. The results in the transformation of hearts through a faith relationship with God, repentance and faith. I, I totally embrace the priority of the gospel. But it just is... We can't get around the fact that both Old and New Testament, James, pure religion and undefiled is this, caring for the fatherless and the widow. Boy, that sounds a lot like what the prophets talk about. So when you think about the prophets, I want you to realize that they're going to bring this up regularly. We're going to see this in Micah 6 tomorrow. If you read Hosea and Amos and Micah, and there's, there's this one passage I'll probably read to you tomorrow that's just horrific in how the prophet describes their dog-eat-dog mentality toward one another. The problem is, is it's, that's not putting God's character on display, and that's an important part of what the prophets are meant to do, almost done. Social injustice after idolatry, and the third sin that they quite often refer to as religious ritualism. God's people seem to forget that the ritual, the sacrifice, the Levitical requirements of the Mosaic law was the means was the, the, the means to the relationship of, of addressing the relationship, of maintaining the relationship with the Lord and not a substitute for the relationship with the Lord. So no one is ever saved by offering a sacrifice. No one is ever saved by keeping the law. But to offer sacrifices, to address the sin in your life, to ask for forgiveness because of your, your covenant treachery, or to, to celebrate God's provision of an abundant harvest with a thanksgiving offering, and all those things were meant to be part of a maintenance of this relationship with the Lord. Obedience was meant to be an outflow of their relationship with the Lord, and the problem was Israel came to think that it was the sum total of their relationship with the Lord. So back to Steve here. Sorry, Steve. You know, in this whole analogy of his marriage to Veronica and I, 
not at all characterizing because you guys have told me something about his marriage that I should be poking, picking on him. But if, if Steve thought that the sum total of his marriage with Veronica was, oh yeah, these 10 items on the list, I'm doing all of those. Even though it's lifeless, even though it's a sterile, really, even though it's heartless and it's grievous because it's totally lifeless, we wouldn't give him a high five, would we? The point is, what God is saying to his people, I want none of your empty-hearted worship of me because it absolutely means nothing. It's your attempt to appear to be my people. And all you're doing is corrupting what I asked of you. And again, Isaiah 1, 11 to 15, it shows that there. So religious ritualism is a, another thing. Yahweh rejected both their sacrifices and their fasting in Isaiah 58. They were offered from anything other than a genuinely obedient heart. All right, now I know I gotta finish here. So first part of the prophet's message is you've sinned and better repent. You've broken the covenant and better repent. The second part of their message is no repentance than judgment. And, and, and the prophets are full of this. In addition to pleading with God's people to repent of their covenant treachery, the prophets promise severe consequences for continued rebellion. And these statements don't represent empty threats. Oh yeah, right. Who are you? Well, I'm just the guy who's bringing you the mosaic message that God gave back in the Pentateuch that you committed your lives to? All that you have spoken we will do? If, if Israel continues to pursue a life of covenant treachery, God says he will judge them with severity. And that judgment, and if you look at Isaiah 28, you have these blessings that are very concrete and material because they're on a land that God has set apart for them in concrete reality. The curses are also very concrete, involving sick families, dwindling families, dying herds and flocks, drought, famine, challenge, conquest, and finally eviction from the land of promise. And what happens in 722 B.C. to the northern kingdom, in 586 B.C. to the southern kingdom, in 70 A.D. to Jerusalem, and 135 as well, is an example of some of that judgment that comes. And so you have to realize that God is not having a temper tantrum in the prophets when he threatens punishment. It's something that's part of a, a committed relationship. He's saying, look, I've pursued you in this relationship and you have said all that I've spoken you will do and you've, you've said that you will be my people and you, so you embrace me as my God and yet you play the prostitute. You, you worship other gods besides me. You don't practice life in a way that puts me on display, especially as it shows up in... You're related with needy people who you can easily take advantage of. And you then trivialize this worship of me that I've established by doing it with an absolute hypocrite heart. Yes, there'll be no repentance, then, no judge, then there'll be judgment. And the third part of the prophet's message is, sorry, the third part there is, there is hope. Yes, there is hope beyond the judgment for a glorious future restoration. Now, this is where I said a little bit ago, when, when you come to the end of the Old Testament and 
Israel's crunched. They never stepped up. The kingdom isn't established. And they're in exile. Some would think, okay, too bad for them. Gentiles, church, we're here. We've replaced them. Everything's for us. Too bad for you. No. I would say you read the prophets. And I have an article coming out in the journal on the Old Testament rationale for premillennialism because again and again and again and again, the prophets, they, they give this paradigm that after covenant curse is experienced and tick-tock, tick-tock, a gap of time, there is this return of the Lord to his people and there's this repentance and faith and the restoration of the nations of the very land they're ripped out of. In the context, it says, and I didn't emphasize it here, but back in Jeremiah, the land I tore you out of, I will restore you to, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, is what God has in mind. So I want you to realize that this hope beyond the judgment for a glorious future restoration is more than, even though it's important, is more than salvation of Israelites, which is a great blessing. I'm not at all minimizing that. But it involves God, who's promised to give them a land and make them a nation, and put them on earth in a way, that, in a scenario where they're going to display his character in vivid and in clear ways to the world around them, which is going to happen in the millennium. That will happen. That's part of the plan. So the, the devastation of God's people through covenant curse is not the end of God's story for his people. Now, we're not going to scratch that itch in these messages for this weekend, but... There are a lot of places you go through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah in particular, and you see this progression of events repeatedly presented that you can't explain away with metaphorical language. It says the end of God's story is the glorification of himself by being de demonstrating that he is the God who keeps his promise in a way that matches his promise, that demonstrates what Genesis 1 talked about when he created the heavens and the earth and mankind. He said, let us make... Mankind, this is the Grisani translation, as our image bearer, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over all of the elements of the world because God's intention was to extend his rule over all that creation. And the entrance of sin into the world kind of interrupted that and demonstrated the need for this lamb slain before the foundation of the world to provide salvation that would enable his people once again to be those image bearers and be part of his rule established over all the earth, which finds its fulfillment in that future glorious restoration as part of the prophetic message. So I just would want you to know that the prophets, that's kind of the big picture. So what we're going to do in our four times together in the prophets is look at little pieces of this, the aspects of it. But I want you to see the big picture to know that this is just part of what the prophets do as a whole. Now, there's some other things I'm not going to cover here, and that is, um, I think you have a question about those in your discussion time, dramatic imagery. And, and let me just say, the point is, like in the prophets, when they don't say God is mad, they say the lion has roared. You know, dramatic imagery, figurative language, it does occur, and and the challenge of dramatic imagery or figurative language is, oh, how do I get at it? Right? What, what does it mean? And what I would encourage you to think about, and there are sources that can help us with this, good commentaries in particular and some other tools, is remember that there's an objective truth being presented by that imagery. And I want to understand that objective truth. When God says, I am the rock, he's not a piece of granite. 
So in the context, what, what's the point of saying I'm a rock? What, what's he saying to them? Well, in their storm, he's this absolutely immovable either protection or support. And I wish I would have spent more time there, but I didn't. And so there are other things, word plays, that I was going to talk about, but um, I'll just show them to you in a couple of passages. Okay? All right, so I'm going to pray. And then Brother Dewey is going to talk about your groups for a discussion. And then he'll tell you about the rest of the day. I'll pray. Thank you, Lord, that um, there are rich truths here in the prophets. And I pray that in my halting speech and just uh, trying to get a lot squeezed in, that you would give us a, a foundation to begin better understanding the prophets as an important part of your word. And to be encouraged that once again in God's word we see a God who is absolutely committed to being the God he promised to be, to do what he promised to do in a way that closely matches what he said in the original covenantal setting. In light of that, Lord, I pray that we would be people to be encouraged that you're a God who keeps your promise, absolutely faithful and reliable to be who you said you would be, to do what you said you would do for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.